This is doomed to repeat. Doomed to repeat. Um, I'm Nick Hoffman, uh, your host, along with Alex Cummings, Georgia State University. Name dropper. Um, so today we're talking about. <laughs> um, well, let, let, I'm already derailed. I'm sorry. We're going to talk today a little bit about sanctuary cities. And if you don't remember what sanctuary cities are, you're forgiven because the news in the last few months has been utter chaos. And so this is a chance for us to kind of focus on one of these small talking points. Um, Immigration has always been part of Donald Trump's kind of bread and butter as a candidate, as a citizen before that, um, or civilian, I guess I meant to say. And... Now that he's president, it's become one of his top issues, um, if you could focus him for that long. <laughs> um, recently – He's busy looking at the eclipse right now. <laughs> directly um, and will, might never be able to look at anything else again. Um, but uh, one of the focus points that we're kind of talking about is um, sanctuary cities because everyone now has to weigh in. Um uh, Attorney General General uh, Jeff Sessions uh, said that money will be taken away from them, and what what does that even mean? Um, and so we we have two experts we're going to talk to today. One is Rob Baker, a professor at Georgia State University, um, who is working on uh, sanctuary cities. Correct, Alex? Well, he's written a lot about uh, the history of slavery in the 19th century when um, there was the de facto equivalent of sanctuary cities in the north that uh, fugitive slaves could flee to. And so a lot of the same issues come up with that in terms of um, local authorities sort of defying federal authority on um, a legal matter. So, yeah, he has a lot of insight into this. And um, it, it's it's interesting, right? Um, we, we're going to get into this. Um, but our second expert is a former lecturer at Georgia State University's uh, law school um, and an attorney – um, with several groups. He also just happens to be my father, um, George Hoffman, who studies uh, and teaches immigration law. Um, and he'll be someone to talk to. And as you can imagine, he has gotten an overwhelming tidal wave of phone calls recently as people are, are worried, um, especially w- among the Hispanic population at our local parish. Um, and so we'll you know, it's one of these things where he doesn't have a book coming out, but he's one of these people who help hopefully ground us and actually define terms like what is an undocumented immigrant versus an illegal immigrant versus a sanctuary city versus a green card, a work permit, a visa, all these ter- – A displaced person, a refugee, you know, all these different categories. Exactly. And what does that – mean how does that affect someone's legal citizenship or status in america and frankly um as rumblings are coming up about what's going to happen with uh the daca which is uh the displaced children the the children of immigrants in the united states um as potential changes are coming to that what will happen to those kids um so legal expert on the podcast i feel so professional um yeah, this uh, episode is going to be a real rib tickler um, <laughs> because it's uh, such a hilarious issue. Um, you know, this goes not just to um, so-called illegals, um, better described as undocumented immigrants uh, who have come to the country for any number of reasons, but, um, you know, Central American children who were um, rushing to the border of the United States in 2014 and since that uh, became such a hot-button issue – all these other problems or conflicts around immigration in recent years are quite striking because immigration is so central to the American mythology, this somewhat misleading notion of a nation of immigrants. Um, even a few years ago, the Republican Party was on board with the idea of comprehensive immigration reform, and we've had a really jarring shift in the other direction here in Metro Atlanta, this has been a very scary thing for a lot of communities uh, worrying about, you know, ICE agents uh, knocking on their doors and rounding up people on Buford Highway or in Clarkston or other communities. And so, you know, this is a very profound and serious thing, but it has a much deeper history than the mere um, simplistic assertion that, well, 
you broke the law, you're an illegal, blah, 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 end of story, get the fuck out. Um, so that's what we're going to be discussing today. It goes to the very roots of uh, American history, and it's uh, still with us today. And I, I want to, you know, also sm- sound kind of smart. So we, we should talk about a little bit, you know, I know Rob gets into the idea of sanctuary and the church and um, and there's if you want to get really interest into this, uh, something that we don't really talk about much, but 99% invisible to this kind of interesting piece on what sanctuary means. Right. But we're also talking about this idea of, of, of labor. You know, this is economic, um, kind of capitalist breakdown 101. And we across the South have seen issues where um, they first tried to pass a immigration ban a couple years ago, and so tomatoes were rotting in Alabama and peaches were rotting in Georgia because we didn't have that kind of labor. Right. Um, but now, uh, in the last few weeks, as of recording, so it could have been months ago, I don't know. Actually, this is coming out in September. I'll say it on the podcast so it'll come out in the next week or so. <laughs> but you know, um, our Attorney General, uh, Jeff Sessions, said that he was going to withhold federal money from sanctuary cities, naming four in particular, uh, Baltimore, Albuquerque, Stockton, and San Bernardino, California. And it just kind of goes to show that there's this threat. Um, And so obviously the idea of sanctuary cities is that immigrants who are there will be protected by uh, local law enforcement as opposed to being turned over. Um, And what Jeff Sessions, uh, General Sessions, wanted to do uh, was essentially use the local prison and the local police to enforce federal immigration policy, which they did not agree with. So in response, the local government is essentially telling them to ignore that federal order. Right. And this is part of this is part of the seesawing of federal and state and local power that has run through all of American history. In fact, been one of the main themes of American history. Uh, historians and political scientists call it federalism. This question of, you know, what can the federal government do? What can the state government do? What can the local government do? And uh, we've been fighting about this for a long time. This is yet another iteration of that conflict. And what's more is it's a very interesting time. Um, as we've talked about a couple times in the brief history of this show, um, general concepts of liberalism and conservatism have been tossed up. But right now, especially in the Trump administration, there seems to be an issue as to where does the federal government need to be? It seems like for the most part, it seems like it is pulling back from the states, giving the states more autonomy as a way to deal with its problems with health care. Um, but in some key areas, including immigration and uh, drug enforcement, it seems like they're going the opposite right. direction, where AG Sessions is really trying to push for a stronger federal presence. And honestly, at the time of recording, it seems to be one of those things that's splintering the Republicans in their support of Trump, um, because the libertarian side really is like, you know what, if you, people want to do this in their state, they should be allowed to. Um Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it does seem to be fracturing his base. Uh, so we'll see where this goes. It's um, it's a live issue. Um, it's an intele- intellectually stimulating um, exercise to discuss, but it's a very real, palpable felt reality for many people in this country right now who are scared. And um, it's uh, not just an academic question, so to speak. So that's what we're going to be discussing with uh, Professor Baker and with Mr. Hoffman. And um, I, I think it's going to be really interesting. Excellent. Uh, so we're going to cut now to, I guess, Alex interviewing um, Rob Baker. You know what really aggravates me? is them immigrants. They want all the benefits of living in Springfield. But they ain't even bothered to learn themselves the language. Yeah, those are exactly my sentimonies. Ah, you shut up, Bond. This is Doomed to Repeat. I'm your host, Alex Safe Cummings, here in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Georgia State University. And we're here today to talk about a subject that a lot of people have been talking about in the last 
six, seven, eight months of, you know, nightmarish hellscape that our lives have become about sanctuary cities and immigration. As we all know, immigration was very central to the presidential campaign of Donald Trump. And he emphasized the issue in a way that other Republicans, the most prominent Republicans in the past probably hadn't. The idea of doing comprehensive immigration reform was on the table just a few years ago. So we've gone in a different direction. And part of the target of that ire has been this idea of a sanctuary city. So we're here today to talk with H. Robert Baker, Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University. He is the author of The Rescue of Joshua Glover, A Fugitive Slave, The Constitution, and the Coming of the Civil War back in 2007, as well as Prig v. Pennsylvania, Slavery, the Supreme Court, and the Ambivalent Constitution. So he's very steeped in uh, the history of American law and constitutional thinking, and in many ways, the relationship between the federal, state, and local governments, which is very central to this whole debate. So we're really excited to have you here today, Rob, and we'd just like to ask you a few questions about where this whole concept came from. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Now, I think this is really fascinating because I had never heard of the concept of Sanctuary City until probably 2007 or 2008. I was watching the uh, GOP debates for the presidential nomination, and this term started coming up. Maybe I was naive, maybe I was um, uninformed. Those are both probably true, but I just never heard of it. And Mitt Romney was talking about how bad Sanctuary Cities were. Other GOP contenders were saying the same thing. And it struck me as a bit odd because you would think the word sanctuary has a fairly um, seemingly positive, nurturing, compassionate sort of uh, coloration to it. So I didn't know what they were referring to. Rob, can you tell us where this idea actually came from? Well, there's the, the current uh, term sanctuary city comes from San Francisco which had passed an, uh, an ordinance, a uh, sanctuary ordinance in 1985. And the response, uh, or the, the, the ordinance itself actually came in response to federal policy regarding people seeking asylum from El Salvador, which was officially a United States ally, but was a horribly repressive regime and which had uh, unleashed death squads in the uh, uh, countryside. And, and uh, many of those who fled were seeking asylum, but the United States would not recognize that asylum. And so cities like San Francisco has essentially announced that they were going to become places of refuge for these people seeking asylum who could not get it officially. Uh, Los Angeles was also, uh, uh, although they didn't pass an ordinance, the Catholic Church in Los Angeles became a, another harbor for these refugees. Uh, San Francisco would later pass an ordinance specifically ending cooperation with immigration officials in 1989. And so that's the real genesis of the current uh, idea of sanctuary cities. Well, that's really interesting, I think, because it originated in terms of sheltering refugees who were fleeing, you know, pretty grotesque violence. But I think a lot of Americans and maybe some people listening to this would, you know, think there's a pretty significant distinction between refugee and immigrant as categories of people. How does this get shifted from just protecting people fleeing war and human rights abuses to being what sounds like kind of a blanket protection for undocumented immigrants? Well, I, I think the, the change there uh, occurs in the 1990s and the aughts as uh, Democrats increasingly gain control of cities. And, and, and as well, they, they uh, deal with the fact that there are so many undocumented workers across the United States. And, and it begins in, in border states like California, but it very quickly extends to uh, all over the, the United States. And because federal immigration law really was not going to be revised to allow for uh, any kind of, of normalization for these undocumented workers, uh, states just began, well, cities in particular, began harboring them. And that's uh, an un kind of an unofficial way that this, that this gets started. It's not entirely clear to me when this became the hot button issue. Uh, you referenced, uh, was it the 2008 campaign? Mm -hmm. 
where you had heard it, I actually I was aware of sanctuary cities, but I had not been aware of it as a as a political issue really until the 2016 election. I, I had regarded them as sort of an outgrowth of a American cooperative federalism. Uh, they seem to be a, a completely reasonable response to federal policy. Uh, they are a normal component of, uh, of federalism that takes dual sovereignty seriously. So I didn't think they were all that controversial until the Trump campaign really started hammering them. American cooperative federalism, you say? Um, yes. It's, it sounds like uh, Linda Richmond, maybe. You know, it's neither American nor cooperative nor federal. At least what's happening right now in our politics, that's what well, culture. So, okay, that, I should have a little bit of a, a terminology intervention there. Political scientists who are interested in American political development refer to different periods of American federalism. So, the, the period between the founding and the Civil War is usually referred to as a, a system of dual sovereignty. Uh, and that is the strongest states' rights position that you have in, in the American constitutional order. So in the dual sovereign world, the federal government had very little in the way of coercive authority. Uh, following the Civil War, and in particular during Reconstruction and in the Progressive Era, the, the United States assumes more and more power. Uh, and then after the New Deal, you enter this period where the states, in essence, surrender almost all of their prerogatives to the federal government. So this is known as the cooperative. And that's, you're right, it's, there's nothing really cooperative about it. It's an entirely coercive federalism. I, I say that, I'm, I'm being a little bit glib, because if you look very carefully at the Supreme Court and the way it treats federalism, there's an undercurrent, kind of Tenth Amendment undercurrent to a lot of the jurisprudence that suggests that once this actually does become coercive, uh, the courts may step in to say that Congress has exceeded its authority. And that's what the defunding fight may end up being about if there is, in fact, going to be a defunding fight. Can you tell, what, tell us what uh, the defunding fight is all about? So there's the executive order that Trump released, uh, signed in his, I think it was his first week in office, where he said that he would defund the, the sanctuary cities. And this led to, I think, one of my greatest moments on Twitter when I was able to go around and read all of these erstwhile states' rights conservatives just shouting about how awful sanctuary cities were and how they should all be defunded and all their federal funding would be lost. And of course, anybody versed in the law knows that that would be patently unconstitutional. The United States cannot simply withhold even discretionary funding by executive order at all. Why not? So they, they, there were various attempts to do this. And the, the controlling case is this 1980, what was it? I think it's 1987 case, United States v. Dole. Maybe it's 85. But the case really had to do with the minimum drinking age that the right. United States wanted to, to establish. And so what it did was it tied highway funding to it. Um, so if, this, if a state refused to raise the drinking age to 21, it would lose highway funding. And so they all fell into line. And then there was a lawsuit that occurred out of this. And some people defending states' rights said that this was a coercive measure and should not be upheld. And so the Supreme Court ruled that it was, in fact, constitutional. But they set a kind of four-part test uh, to see if federal defunding was, in fact, constitutional. And there were two very simple directives. One was that it had to be connected to the general welfare. Uh, the second is that it had to be at least nominally connected to a federal interest. Those are two parts of the test. But then there were uh, a couple of very important tests. And the tests were that uh, the states must be made aware of what conditions there were. They had to have adequate notice of what conditions there were attached to federal funding. It had to be unambiguous. And the states had to knowingly exercise their choice. And there also had to be no other constitutional barriers. So there, there couldn't, for instance, be a First Amendment or a Fourth Amendment challenge to the law in question. And that's actually critical because the Fourth Amendment has been a big question in immigration enforcement. So an executive order cannot meet this test because there has been no explicit tying of funding, a general federal funding to the enforcement of federal immigration law or cooperation with federal authorities. Just as a sidebar here, and I don't want to get into the weeds too much, 
but the 2012 Sebelius decision on the Affordable Care Act has something to do with this, right? I mean, this idea that um, the federal government couldn't coerce the states into expanding Medicaid by, you know, tying it to their other pre-existing Medicaid funds. At least that's my understanding of it. Is that part of the same principle? Um, yeah. That it was unduly co- coercive under the standards set by this Dole decision? Well, it's, I mean, there, first of all, there's a, a, a very thick a very thick jurisprudence that lies underneath all of this. And it's a very strange kind of shifting uh, pattern of, of uh, judicial decision-making. So it's not entirely stable, uh, but Sibelius is indeed a part of it. And so too is the Prince decision, which is issued in, I think that's decided in 1997. And that's the anti-commandeering principles. So this was, this was a, a case connected to the uh, Brady Bill. So you have the Brady Act and you have a section of the Brady Act which required local sheriffs to – They, I think what they had to do was check a national database for gun ownership and this would, would help enforce the, the Brady Act. And because this imposed a requirement on uh, local officers, the sheriffs refused – there's several sheriffs refused to do it and this was litigated up through the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said very clearly that the states – could not have their officers commandeered by the federal government. So, yeah, and, and this, is, this is one of the most important decisions. Now, it's a conservative majority that upholds Prince. And in fact, Justice John Paul Stevens very strongly dissented. And the liberal justices wanted to see a, uh, at least a mild kind of commandeering be allowed. It was a federal supremacy issue. So the more states' rights leaning Rehnquist Court uh, refused to do that. And this is where... Now, with the anti-commandeering principle firmly in place, we, I, I strongly suspect that the current conservative tenor of the court will remain the same because the, the ideological makeup of the court has not shifted right. since Rehnquist's uh, chief justiceship. Right. So I guess the question here is, like, what case can be made that uh, local towns or cities can choose to disregard or not cooperate with federal laws? That's a great question. First of all, uh, start, let's start with several stipulations. Uh, the first stipulation is that immigration is a federal matter. It's a national matter. It is entirely within the purview of Congress, and the states have no business whatsoever trying to legislate an immigration policy that's different from the United States. I and mean, I think that has to be stipulated. Now, that being said, states are, in fact, rebelling against this through sanctuary uh, city and sanctuary county Legislation states like California have passed this into law, so the entire state legislature is complicit uh, in a rejection of uh, a very important tenet of federal supremacy, uh, and it occurs in a variety of different contexts. I mean, I feel like liberals and conservatives always like to have it both ways on everything, right? Like conservatives are all about states' rights, but then they want the local governments to bend to the will of Trump on immigration. Uh, liberals, you know historically have kind of favored the stronger federal hand in things uh, over state or local control in a lot of areas. I think it's fair to say economic policy, civil rights, etc. Um, but, you know, they're more than happy to flout the law if it's about marijuana or uh, legalizing gay marriage on a local level against the federal, you know, the Defense Marriage Act. And then you have conservatives who are also saying, like, well, the state should be able to regulate immigration, whereas, you know, that goes against this very strong anti-immigrant policy that we're seeing emanating from a conservative uh, federal administration. So, I mean, there, there's a long history of, you know, people having very situational morality when it comes to uh, federalism and the relationship between the state and federal government. But there is this long deep history of tension between state and local governments on one hand and the federal government on the other, and people resisting federal laws that they see as unjust. What kind of um, historical precedents would you see for that? So there's a, there's a lot contained in that statement. And before I, before I get into the history of it, uh, <laughs> okay. which will connect to I this. Tried to, I tried to sneak a lot in there. You did. Um, and... It's true. Uh, liberals, since the certainly since the 1960s, have used the federal hammer uh, to advance their causes, and so have become more and more associated with the federal government. Whether it's through the 
revolutionary civil rights act and voting rights act or through the Supreme Court, which had never really been an ally of liberal causes. In fact, the Supreme Court is a conservative institution throughout most of American history. So liberals are, I think, kind of returning to a state that they <laughs> historically <laughs> have operated within uh, today. But I want to be, I want to be very clear that this kind of federalism that we see, this kind of dissent and the use of the states as a site for dissent is a critical part of the American system. And it's a critical part for this reason. It's actually for several, but I mean, this one being the most important, it's a great substitute to violence. If the United States is, is far too large a country, it's too geographically uh, spread out, it is too diffuse, it is too pluralistic for us to be fully encapsulated under one government. And if we had a federal supremacy that had no avenue for dissent, we would have enormous difficulty actually enforcing the law. It would become more difficult to do so. So I think it's more important that people find ways to dissent within the system. And that will, by the way, run us into these problems, whether it's decriminalization of marijuana and the attorney general seems poised to make that into a federal issue again and, and to reverse Obama era policies. And he's going to spark a confrontation with uh, particularly with Colorado mm -hmm. and Colorado is not going to go quietly. It would not surprise me at all if they don't if they don't pick up the old Tenth Amendment statutes, which following the election of Obama, all the conservative states passed, where they assert the Tenth Amendment and say they have the right to resist federal policy when they think that federal policy oversteps its bounds. Now, I got into some trouble recently for tweeting about this because my uh, <laughs> liberal friends in the in the professoriate, law school profs, don't like Tenth Amendment jurisprudence, and so they didn't like it when I when I brought this up. But I think it's actually vital. I think it was vital that people who opposed Obamacare, for instance, had the opportunity to take to the state legislatures and use state discretion in order to protest that. They did the same thing, by the way, uh, these states did with refugee resettlement. Well, remember the governor's signing executive order saying no relocation in our states. It was, you know, that, that's, I think that's actually very, very important because that's it gives voice. That's not actually defying federal law, though, is it? No. And that was the funny part about it. It was really for show because, of course, the states had essentially no authority over where the federal government was going to resettle anybody. So it was a lot of bluster and it was very quietly sort of pushed under the rug after resettlement did occur. It didn't actually prevent the resettlement. It did not, no. Uh, at least not, I mean, I, I could be missing some facts in there, but my, my understanding was that they were very loud at the time. They allowed people to express their dissent to the Obama refugee policy, and they found an, an organ through which they could do so. And, it, and I think that's actually quite important because if you don't channel those dissents into constitutional channels, they will find another expression. And that other expression is usually violence. This is the idea that uh, war is politics by other means, right? Yeah. Politics is a substitute for violence. Uh, and so, by the way, is constitutional politics. And we forget sometimes that our real constitutional battles take place outside the Supreme Court. They take place almost every day as people articulate positions respective to constitutional authorities. And then they, they follow through those lines of combat. And it, it really is a competition. I'm a little confused because I feel like, on one hand, local authorities passing a resolution on whatever hot-button issue they are concerned about, whether it's immigration or gay marriage or whatever, um, doesn't seem to be quite the same thing as uh, saying we are going to openly and actively flout federal law. You know, in the 80s, when these pastors and these priests were sheltering refugees in the Southwest, per se, let's say that, they were essentially practicing civil disobedience, right? I mean, right. they were actually breaking the law. Mm -hmm. And is is the sanctuary city the same thing? Is it actually breaking a law? Okay, that's a good question. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, it is after 1996. Uh, there's a an immigration act which is passed in 1996, and uh, it specifically forbids the states from passing laws that contain non-cooperation elements. So, and that's in essence all that sanctuary cities do. 
They do not honor right. requests for uh, detaining people based on immigration uh, or a request from the uh, from the ICE officers, uh, immigration and customs enforcement. Uh, that's that's what they are. So it is actually against federal law. Now the problem is that there's absolute, at least as I read it, there's no teeth in that in that particular law. I mean, what, in other words, how do you hold liable somebody if there's no real penalty for it? How do you hold them liable? This is where the whole defunding question comes up. And there are some uh, homeland security bills that have riders attached that can allow funding that's going to law enforcement to be diverted from cities that are openly sanctuary jurisdictions. So there is some federal funding that connects to that. And in fact, that's all, uh, so said our, our attorney general, that's all that that, that executive order does. It's directing people to follow the laws as they currently exist. Now, you translate that to Twitter, and in, <laughs> in the Twitter world, they, there's this kind of belief that all federal funding could suddenly disappear from the state of California because it's a sanctuary jurisdiction, which, of course, is nowhere close to the reality. All federal funding in the sense of literally every Medicaid payment, every uh, yeah. law enforcement uh, financial support. Yes. And if you listen to the cable news, I mean, the, the uh, I, I don't because I don't have cable, but uh, occasionally I catch these things. And I think the mayor of Los Angeles came out and pointed out how much money flows in and what they would be doing to a city like Los Angeles if they stripped it of all its federal funding. And he included in that funding that goes directly to individuals like Social Security. Uh, which is not a grant to the state. It's a grant to you as a person. So, of course, they can't stop Social Security to somebody who happens to live in a sanctuary jurisdiction. That's ludicrous. And it shows you in a way just how polarized the debate is over these issues. We're not talking about a lot of funding, in other words, when it comes to sanctuary jurisdictions. What we're really talking about is the ability of states to say, we will control our law enforcement. We will control our own officers and we will either cooperate or not cooperate based on our decision to do so. Wow. So just to get to your specialized expertise, uh, looking at the 19th century, there was a great deal of conflict between state and national authorities around slavery. And were there sanctuary cities or sanctuary states that refused to enforce laws respecting slavery? Yes. And so this is the uh, it, it's it's one of the most instructive histories that we have if we want to see this kind of federalism in action. The federal government empowered state officers to return fugitive slaves. And there's this clause in the Constitution in Article four. If you run from one state to another and you're a slave, the Constitution directs that you will not be free if you run to a free jurisdiction, but instead you will be delivered up to your master. So this raises a question, who does the delivering? How do you arrest somebody like that? Uh, and because the Constitution was silent on these matters, states passed their own fugitive slave laws. And most of the states had a fugitive slave law that directed their officers to pick up people uh, who were claimed as fugitive slaves, to arrest them, to put them in jail, and then hold a hearing and order them deported if they were in fact a fugitive slave. Federal government passed a law too. Uh, in 1793, and that law empowered state officers to do the same thing that the states were empowering their officers to do. And the real conflict shows up in the 1830s and the 1840s as free states really become free states. Uh, they shed their last connections to slavery. The last slaves uh, who were kind of grandfathered in under the old abolition statutes are finally freed. And the free states take on this identity as free states. And one of the things that they decide they want to do is stop returning fugitive slaves, despite the Constitution's very clear directive to do so. The long and short of this is that the, the, the issue comes before the Supreme Court of the United States. And, and the Supreme Court rules that Congress cannot force the states to return fugitive slaves. It is, in other words, a federal duty, not a state duty. And this leads to the whole first set of non-cooperation laws, because once that duty has been taken away, the states say, all right, well, we'll just have nothing to do with it. And so they start passing laws saying state officers cannot aid in the returning of fugitive slaves, which practically is nullification, because what it means is that the slaveholders who are going into these border states 
are, uh, are going into hostile territory and when they try to arrest a fugitive slave, they're oftentimes brutalized by gangs of very well-organized people called vigilance committees uh, who publish their whereabouts and otherwise threaten their person. So they need federal aid to do this. But the Supreme Court makes it very clear that, that the states cannot be coerced into doing it. So the long and short of that, though, is that this history, which produces, by the way, a lot of still very serviceable doctrine, uh, including federal preemption, uh, non-cooperation, unfunded mandates. I mean, there's a whole line of decisions that come out of this, this issue, which are more or less still enforced, I mean, in some way today. Uh, and it sets up this relationship because for people who lived in the free states, they had no other way. They could not go through Congress to do anything about slavery. Congress was beholden to the slaveholders. They couldn't, in elections, express any kind of serious anti-slavery feeling, but they could in the states. And this afforded the states uh, the opportunity to set up a policy that was at odds with a national pro-slavery policy. So were these sanctuary cities? So, yes, I mean, I would say they were because you have uh, state, so you have cities like uh, Boston, for instance, uh, and there's a couple of very prominent fugitive slave renditions in the 1850s. But for the most part, it was known as a an asylum. It was and they used the word asylum rather than that of sanctuary. But uh, it was an asylum for fugitive slaves. And there are other cities that function this way, too. So you have uh, Syracuse, New York. Uh, you have uh, Milwaukee and Wisconsin. There's a, a, a very prominent community in Chicago and, of course, in Cincinnati right on the border. And these cities form a nexus, if you will, for, this, for the resisting of a pro-slavery policy. So what do you think is the future going forward in terms of this balance between um, local versus national or state versus federal either cooperation or conflict? Well, I think it'll continue to be conflict. The, the nice thing, by the way, about constitutional channels for dissent is that they grind things out. So people who want an immediate answer to this, and these are the voices you always see on Twitter, or the, the voices certainly on the cable news shows, they seem to want an immediate answer to everything. And that the law just simply doesn't work that way. You can't make that kind of change that quickly. And this, of course, is very much what uh, Trump has learned coming into office. And he's expressed a, a good amount of frustration with the fact that he can't just do things however he wants. And, right. you know, veterans like Jeff Sessions actually understood this. And you can see them angling for the change that they want through the normal channels. But by grinding it out, you allow for there to be enough compromise so that the end result reflects at least some kind of consensus. So, I mean, let me give you another example of this uh, in terms of sanctuary cities. So in, in uh, uh, the original ordinance that uh, creates San Francisco as a sanctuary city, it's a very blanket ordinance. It's in 1985 and 1989, they, they pass a, a non-cooperation ordinance. But uh, then later, in the 1990s, the state of, uh, or rather the, the city of San Francisco actually passes a, another ordinance that exempts violent criminals. So, all right. In other words, states, state officers, you don't have to report on, on immigration status. But if you pick up somebody wanted for murder and it turns out they are here illegally, you can turn them over. And, and then they, they uh, also... Uh, restrict this only to people who have reached their age of majority. So juveniles are exempted from this policy. And then in the aughts, there is uh, a murder that occurs and a juvenile that had been picked up by the city uh, had been released and then he en ends up killing somebody, uh, several people, I think, and the state is sued, or the city is sued. Um, and following that, they take the juveniles off the table. If you pick up a, a violent offending juvenile, now that person can be turned over to immigration. So if you think about it, this is a long process over decades in which the policy of San Francisco as a sanctuary city is actually greatly curtailed. It's not just a general sanctuary. There are rules that they have established. And actually, that gets very close to what I think most people who think they are supporting uh, the Trump line might find agreeable. You know, that, okay, well, at least they're turning over the violent offenders, because that's where a lot of the, the, uh, you know, the 
Twitter sphere has been focused. And so all these people, not that they are necessarily criminals now, but that they could be criminals or they could kill somebody or do something really bad. And these people are uh, contemplated under the compromise that has, has come forward today. This, this isn't um, there are rules. Um, we all live in Walter Sochek's world. It's beginning to feel increasingly like that. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for talking with us about this because it's hard not to look at the last eight or nine years, maybe longer, and not see a, a faltering faith in our institutions. When President Obama was in office, there was a widespread perception that he was acting in a dictatorial manner, at least on the right, that he was, you know, ignoring or disregarding federal law with things like the uh, deferred action on childhood arrivals policy, also known as DACA. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a big legal discussion about can an administration sort of unilaterally choose to enforce uh, the law in one way or the other more robustly or less robustly, perhaps. Now, certainly, um, liberal enclaves feel like they're under attack um, from a newly conservative federal government, and they're have been some serious concerns raised early in the Trump administration about what, how the rule of law will fare given the current political situation. So the sanctuary cities issue um, is highly uh, polarizing and emotional, I think, but it also speaks to just the sense of people feeling very worried and scared and anxious that what we had taken for granted, that this is a nation of laws and law will be enforced, is somehow being abrogated or is in peril. And I, I, I don't mean to say that the right and left are equivalent or it's both sides-ism or whatever, but um, there is a great deal of anxiety and concern about American institutions. I think you are a little more of an institutionalist than me. Uh, I think you maybe believe that the mechanisms of federalism actually maybe have a little more, I don't know, resilience. And I'm a little more nervous about um, the direction we're going, but it's well. Really I, I didn't say I wasn't nervous about the direction, but I do. I do think that the institutions are more resilient than we sometimes give them credit for. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot play out in the next in the next six months. This th there's going to be very interesting to see where these investigations in Congress go, uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see just how far. Trump can push these constitutional norms. The one thing I, I will say regarding that is there, yes, I, I believe in institutions and I believe in, in uh, and I think institutions are a great thing to study uh, because they, they have rules for their own stability and you know exactly if you study them where they can be pushed into uh, uh, decline. But I'm also a big fan of culture. Uh, particularly as it relates to our constitution. So we live in a world of, of norms, right? legal norms, constitutional norms. To and, be continued. Yeah. But those, those, are, gonna, those are what is, uh, are, I think, very dangerously being tested by, by this organization, by the, the Trump team. And if those start to erode, uh, I will be very concerned. Well, you know, I should hasten to add that we're speaking at the end of July uh, 2017, so um, who knows what the next six months will bring. Nevertheless, I really hope you're right. I, I think that we've managed to survive the bloodbath of the Civil War while keeping our Constitution more or less intact. Um, hopefully we can survive this. We'll see. To be continued. Well, this has been a really enlightening conversation. We were talking with H. Robert Baker, the Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University, a legal historian and constitutional historian. He's written a lot of great stuff. He's written several pieces that are a sister project, um, Tropics of Meta, which have been among the most uh, widely read and interesting contributions that we've had. So if you want to learn more about these issues, you can look up uh, Rob over at Tropics of Meta. In the meantime, check out his books as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Get deported, there'll be a lot more elbow room for regular Joes like you and me, Apu. Uh, Mr. Simpson, it may astonish you to learn that I am an immigrant. You? <laughs> I don't believe it. No, in truth, an illegal immigrant, sir. If Proposition 24 passes, I shall be forced to leave this country. Oh, I wish. 
Oh, I wish I could have stayed just one more year or two. There was so much I wanted to see and to do and to have done to me. Oh my God. I got so swept up in the scapegoating and fun of Proposition 24. I never stopped to think it might affect someone I cared about. You know what, Apu? I am really, really going to miss you. Thank you, Alex and Rob, for that kind of interesting take on it. As someone who studies the 19th century, it's it's really difficult to talk about all the layers. And ironically, again, we didn't think about this when we were putting it together, but it's crazy how much this era keeps biting us back. Um, as, as we speak, we're tearing down Confederate statuary, and we're talking about how um, African Americans who fled slavery were treated um, in popular culture as well. So, so once again, the podcast is more prescient than ever. Um, unintentionally, of course. Um, our next interview, um, as mentioned at the top, is with George Hoffman, who has had a wide and varied career um, from being the president of the Alliance Francaise um, in Atlanta to being the attaché for the Belgian Olympic team for the 96 Olympic Games to being a part-time lecturer at uh, Georgia State and a guest lecturer at Georgia Tech. Um, appropriately enough, he's also my father, so he was an easy get for me, which is not always what I can say about these interviews for the podcast. Um, he's also the honorary consulate of Luxembourg, and we'll kind of bring all this together as a way to talk about what it means to be part of a global community as being in the city of Atlanta, of course. Um, we are desperately trying to be the global capital of the South, um, but also what it means to be someone who deals with immigration law in a time of such, you know, instability. Uh, so I'm going to cut to now me and my father, George Hoffman. Now, a message from your governor. Good evening. As you know, I have dealt with many aliens in the past, but now you criticize me about the Mexico alien. Here, I show you how the great state of California has dealt with the Mexico border issue. Here we have the high-tech border fence with the highly trained border guard who will explain further. People running across the border was a problem, but these new systems are impregnable. <laughs> Son of a bitch! And here is the latest hero to fight the illegal border crime. Superman! Thank you, Governor. We super friends had no idea that El Dorado wasn't illegal when we let him join our ranks. I'm on my way to deport him right now. Yeah, yeah, good job with that Superman thing going on there. And how did you come to this great country yourself? Sir, if you have a moment, I wanted to talk about how you got into this country. Up, up, and away! Well, my name is George Hoffman. I'm an attorney and I'm specializing in immigration. I've done that now for about uh, 25 years. Um, and of course, immigration has been in the news lately and it's a subject that uh, is very important for a large number of immigrants. Well, we, we wanted to have you on um, because of course, it was part of uh, President Trump's platform at first. Um, and, you know, very clearly everything from build a wall to the repeal recently of DACA. Um, and so what I wanted to have you on is kind of come on and clarify some terms, talk a little bit about it, um, mainly because I think it's something that a lot of people have opinions on without being fully kind of educated as to what it is, of course. Um, so I first want to kind of start out with um, the, the, the way that immigration is kind of laid out in this country and, um, you know, and, and how someone like you comes into play here. So if I want to come to the States and I want to work and what do you do? How do you come to the, the scenario? 
Well, any foreigner who comes to the United States, like in most countries in the world, is pretty much allowed to come in for a period of 90 days and visit and uh, go around and then go back to his own, own country. If you want to work or if you want to stay longer than 90 days, you pretty much have to obtain a visa, depending on the work that you will do, the studying that you will do. There are all kinds of visa situations that you can qualify for and the process is of course either to apply through the immigration service or through the consulates u.s consulates abroad it's a tedious process it's a process that has been subject to many many changes over the year it's extremely uh, bureaucratic and extremely tedious to uh, go through it but basically what i do is to assist people who try to get visas here or try to change their status while they're here, um, you know, obtain the appropriate documents to uh, be able to work and stay and sometimes form a family here. So, again, depending on the situation, this is within my realm of work. I do not practice uh, asylum and refugees, which is a different specialty. Nevertheless, uh, the reason why it is a very touchy subject, it's because the United States has historically had a large number of illegal aliens, as they are referred to. Illegal because they either came without a visa uh, through the borders of uh, Mexico or Canada, um, or they came here on a visa and just overstayed. And right now we have a very large number of uh, illegals in the United States, which is a very touchy subject, especially for the base of uh, the, the Trump supporters, which has touted that all these people took the jobs of American citizens, which is not the case. But that is a very popular argument, and that is also one of the promises that he wanted to keep uh, when he became president. What is the difference then between a, an illegal and an undocumented? Well, uh, again, uh, illegal encompasses every one of them. Uh, undocumented is, is exactly what it says. It means that somebody who does not the appropriate document to stay, you know, by that mere fact, uh, is illegally in the country. Now, those who came legally and overstayed are also illegal. So um, we kind of like the term undocumented because we do believe very strongly that children who came with their parents are not illegal. They may be undocumented, uh, but uh, find the term illegal linked to children who came here in a young age totally unacceptable. So uh, we use the term undocumented. It's probably a semantics, but uh, we like that uh, that it would be perceived like that. I mean, a lot of <laughs> semantics is a funny way to put it, because all these terms have a very weird, specific definition, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's true, but uh, you know, be, people like to refer to acronyms and so forth. So, um, yeah. and you know, also making making referral to uh, people like this is illegal, much as a much more strong approach to the electoral basis, of course. Sure. And I mean, it, I, we've talked about this before, but you can't just marry a citizen to get status. You know, it's, it's actually very complicated. So from here, we should talk a little bit about what DACA is and um, how that's, you know, and, and what that means and how it's changed and that kind of thing. Well, DACA, of course, stands for Deferred Action of uh, Children, uh, you know, accompanied children or people who came uh, across the border as child, uh, as a, a young person who came with uh, the parents when the parents crossed the border. The, um, they came when they were between three or just been born here. Well, not born here, they would be a citizen, but just as newborns up to 16 years old and uh, who are now in a situation where they cannot obtain a visa, they cannot obtain a legal status, and um, pretty much were left alone 
until uh, President Obama passed the DACA and then they became, uh, you know, the subject of a lot of publicity. But basically, these people are without a legal status, could not obtain a social security, could not drive. And uh, that was not so much a problem as long as they were staying in elementary school, middle school or high school. But it became a problem when they wanted to go to college because the colleges were instructed not to accept people without legal documents. And then they are actually uh, were kind of left uh, in limbo. President Obama in 2012 passed the DACA Act. Uh, also, these people are, are referred to as DREAMers because DREAMER is also an acronym for deferred something, something. You know, it's a, an acronym, but it refers to these people who are in the situation of the DACA. And basically, it is a act by which the president instructed the Department of Justice not to start deportation action against these kids or against these young people. Um, it really is a prosecutorial uh, choice that was given to uh, the, uh, you know, the attorneys, attorney generals and uh, people in different states. Uh, very quickly, the Republicans said that it was illegal and that it was an abuse of uh, presidential power. There's a lot of discussion about it, and there may very well be some basis to say that it was not uh, illegal or it was ex going beyond its prerogatives. But the, the bottom line is I don't see how you can justify sending these kids back to a country that they've never known and to a place without their parents and um, for the simple reason that they came without the appropriate documents. Now, um, that, actually, that actually means that uh, a solution has to be found. Uh, Trump, as you know, gave six months to when he actually get, got rid of the DACA recently. In fact, in October, October the, the 5th, um, he uh, said that the DACA would be rescinded and give six months to Congress to find a solution. So October 5th is a deadline for these uh, people to apply for renewal if they qualify. But, um, you know, the, the, the extension of DACA, which was called DAPA, would give the parents of these kids also legal status. That was... Uh, that was uh, presented before the uh, federal court who uh, stopped the practice and said that the DAPA would be illegal and would not be uh, enforced. That has to go to the Supreme Court, but it looks very likely that that part of the executive order would not be uh, enforced. So we are still stuck with DACA. And uh, we will see uh, by the 5th if the Congress has actually done something about it. We don't know. We, uh, frankly, honestly, I, I, I would hope that somewhere, President Trump, if the if the Congress doesn't do anything, that President Trump would give these people a status. Uh, but frankly, I I have no idea. I really do not know which way it will go. Now, if someone is in violation, then because, like you said, I mean, the part of the problem is that these people are often employed or or students or something like that, right? Um, Whose responsibility is it to turn them in? Like, can a school turn them in? If, if, if a school has an illegal student, do they have to? Or are they in violation of some sort? Well, the, 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 the employer, well, let's be very clear. The, the kids and the young people who have DACA have also an employment authorization and a social security number so they can work and they can drive. Those, very often their parents who do not have these documents work, and we all know that a lot of them work, um, are not supposed to work without uh, authorization, and their employers should be turning them in, which they don't do. Uh, why? Because uh, these people work very hard, don't complain, and uh, uh, are very good workers. So the, the employers are very happy to have them, and these people do work that American workers don't want to do, and regardless of what the um, president says and some of these groups say they are doing work that uh, American workers don't want to do. Now, um, like I said, the 
employers should turn them in more often than not it's done through a violation a traffic violation or a um, you know a misdemeanor crime like drug possession or something like that that they go through the court system and then the court system refers these people to the immigration service i hasten to say that not all the courts do that but some courts do and uh, that's how they got uh, they get caught in the immigration uh, web um, it used to be that if you did not commit a crime meaning a you know a serious crime uh, you would still be released and uh, on your merry way you go but that is no longer the case now the, the police officers will refer almost anyone who commits any type of violation, traffic or not, to the immigration service. And that's kind of where these different states and different cities are different, right? Because right. it's Georgia right. state troopers that refer people versus not. Right. It also depends on the county. Obviously, you have counties that are much more liberal than others. Um, certain, certain counties have been on a strict instruction to actually uh, refer them to uh, um, the immigration i mean we all know what sheriff arapayo and and uh, arizona. arizona has been doing has been done for years well i mean it happens in other counties and it happens in other states so obviously these people uh, you know my advice to the dacas when i meet and i meet quite a few of them is also well stay home go from uh, home to work from work to home and don't go out don't go drinking don't go with a kid with the friends I know that's not very pleasant, but that's one way to uh, stay put. So <laughs> it's really scary. It is scary. It is especially scary when you meet these young children or these youngsters who are 12, 13 year old who will tell you, well, you know, when I come home, I have no idea if my parents will be there. So and, you know, some of them have brothers and sisters who are citizen because they were born here. So, you know, it's I understand that there is a legal and there is a criminal background to all this but mainly and first and front is humanitarian question i mean do you send people like this who have not committed any crime who are studying who are working who are good citizens uh, of course the citizen being between quotes um, and who are actually uh, you know are very nice people why do you send them back to a place where they have never lived. And some of these places, I just think about Guatemala, Honduras, and other places which are very high in crime, and you know, where the, the risk is that they will, uh, uh, you know, be subject to um, criminality there, so. Okay, I, I also think that uh, behind the, the controversy about illegal immigration, there's still the huge problem of reforming the immigration system, meaning those who come in legally, who uh, either find a job or who create a company that creates a job for American worker, the whole immigration system is totally bankrupt. I mean, it takes uh, somebody, you know, who wants to find a job, who has a job, who wants to become a citizen, and I'm not even talking about a citizen, but a permanent resident, it takes them between five and six years to actually be able to do all this. Um, and the, the system should definitely favor um, favor people who are, come and fill either a very high skilled position that is for which is a shortage. And there's plenty of companies who've said very publicly, like Apple, uh, like Amazon, that there is a shortage of uh, high skilled workers in that in their field. So there should be a way to have these people come in, not based on the limited number. Um, one number that has been uh, one type of in immigration person that has been coming in on a regular basis are seasonal workers who work, you know, for harvest and, uh, uh, you know, and a leaf after the, when the harvest is over. But in a, a larger term, there are plenty of possibilities of people who want to come, who want to invest, and who have a real problem obtaining the visa. I'll give you another example. There are, the United States does not have a visa for people who are retired, who simply want to come and spend money in the United States and not work. There is no visa for that, and like very other countries that do have them. So the whole immigration system has to be reviewed dramatically, and we talk about it 
since the, for the last 40 years and it's still not happening. So there are definitely both the legal immigration, the illegal Im immigrants, they have both have a lot of work to be done to rectify this uh, situation. I, I, like I said, I practiced immigration law now for a long time, a little bit by accident, but um, I started doing this. And the personal aspect of practice immigration is very rewarding because you meet people and you know you can you can actually see and feel that you help them the the flip side is that you deal with an administration which is becoming very rational and um, it's also based on interpretation of regulations that are very subjective and it really becomes very frustrating but you know well, and I know it's not your position, but it's just reading the stuff about the refugee change today. It's crazy that he's limiting it to 45 or whatever. It doesn't matter the numbers. The the it just it's it's. Well, the refugee problem is definitely a different problem, and um, it is also for me, I think, a problem that needs to be resolved on a basis of, of the whole world accepting refugees. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to just say, well, you know, these people accept so many people, these people accept so many people. Um, I do believe that the United States can absorb a number of refugees, which number, I don't know. Uh, which um, which vetting also, I don't know. I mean, there are people much more qualified than I am who have given their opinion on that. So I, I just think that there is a lot of people who are really in need of uh, assistance in the world. And I think that uh, the United States should uh, be in the forefront of that. But, you know. Very good. Um, well, thanks to George Hoffman, my father, for coming on and actually explaining stuff because I read a lot of this and it doesn't always make sense because there's people behind it and you're someone who's not, the front line is the wrong way to put it, but you're someone who has to deal with this, like you said, all the time. Well, stay tuned. I mean, the DACA is definitely going to be in the news again, so hopefully it will turn out to be okay. Thanks. All right. Cats! Gato! Cats! Cats! I didn't see any cats. Won't it be nice to get to America where we don't have to worry about cats anymore? There are no cats in America. We would like to thank Dr. Baker and Mr. Hoffman for their contributions to this episode. Doom to Repeat is hosted by Nick Hoffman and Alex Cummings. It is executive produced by Nick Hoffman for Dude Letter Podcasting. It was edited by Keegan Shepard and Candace Burns. Nick Hoffman is a lecturer at Kennesaw State University and executive producer at Dude Letter Podcasting. Alex Cummings is an associate professor at Georgia State University and the editor of Tropics of Meta. His book, Democracy of Sound, Music, Piracy, and the Remaking of the American Copyright in the 20th Century, is now available in paperback. This concludes Season 1. We'll see you next year. Thanks. Thanks.